Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, the Federal Reserve just upgraded its assessment of the U.S. economy. But at the same time, Jerome Powell is not really giving the market many clues about when the central bank will begin to scale back the extraordinary monetary stimulus it's been providing. What does this all mean for the outlook for inflation and financial markets? Well, we'll get into it with the co-chief investment officer of the world's biggest hedge fund firm. But first, Charlie Pellet, let us know who this week's mystery co-host is. Liz Capo McCormick is a reporter for Bloomberg who began her career on a Wall Street trading desk before being lured into media. She actually has a degree in physics, which means she can spot a Mike Regan tangent from a mile away. She's excited to do the podcast because now when Regan asks her dumb questions about the Fed, she can just say, listen to the tape, Mike. Liz, I'm not sure Charlie's right about that. I think I'm still going to be asking you questions about the Fed on a daily basis, as as is our normal routine. So, uh, We can't talk about physics. Uh, God knows I haven't used my physics in a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> I, we could. I will nod as if I know what you're talking about, but uh, we, we better not. But uh, let's bring our guest in. I don't know if he has any thoughts on physics, but I know he's got some great thoughts on the market. Uh, he is, as I said, he's the co-chief investment officer at Bridgewater Associates. His name is Greg Jensen. Greg, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot. It's good to talk to you guys. Greg, let's get right into it uh, and talk about the Fed meeting on Wednesday. Um, You know, my impression is the statement itself and the press conference from Chairman Powell didn't really move the needle much as far as I think what a lot of market participants really crave. And that's some clarity on when we can expect asset purchases to, to begin to be tapered and, and eventually after that, a normalization of interest rate policy. But I'm just curious what your reaction is. Um, did you take away anything, any new information from that uh, statement and, and discussion from Chairman Powell? Yeah, nothing new, particularly in on um, Wednesday's message, but the basic picture is really important and really necessary to talk about it when you're thinking about markets and, and macro economies, which is that we're in a new paradigm of central banking. That if you go back over the last 40 years, starting with Volcker, you had an inflation fighting. What first phase was a monetary policy one, what we call kind of managing the economy through interest rates and lower interest rates causing more private sector debt, higher interest rates causing a, a, a debt cycle in the opposite direction. You move past the financial crisis in 2008, interest rates get all the way to zero, private sector debt hits its peaks that even at zero interest rates, you can't stimulate. 
and you move into money printing, making up for the loss of credit. And that's what we'd call monetary policy too, where you go QE, buy assets with it. It affects the economy, but very indirectly, it much more affects asset prices. And here we are in what we consider an MP3 world, where in 2018, the Fed kind of learned the final lesson that they don't want to be too preemptive, that they started raising interest rates before inflation came. It had negative effects and unnecessary negative effects in their mind. And so here we're in a world where monetary policy is mostly supporting fiscal policy. It's not as important as fiscal policy, and it is not going to be preemptive that they are going to wait and wait and wait for inflation to rise, for bubbles to form before they take any action. And that, that's the big deal here. And, and in a way, this is a dangerous territory, but it's also necessary territory. When you look at the conditions that we had coming into the COVID pandemic, we thought this movement to MP3 would take five to 10 years. But the reason that it was inevitable was there so, was the essentially the level of IOUs and the level of wealth can't be paid back through income. So you have to print money to support essentially the promises in the economy. And there's so much division in the country that stimulative, more inflationary policy makes more sense than this 40-year pro-corporate, lower and lower inflation environment. So you've gotten this shift. The shift is necessary, but now we're in a whole new set of risks that you know most market participants um, haven't really had to deal with because the, the problems of, of these types of policies haven't really been around for 40 years. And in the short term, the more easing, the better. The countries that have done more fiscal and more monetary are better off than the countries that didn't. That's evident. And, um, and that that is going to push itself inevitably until those policies cause problems. Greg, I'll jump in. Something also about the Fed, but touching on what you were saying, this paradigm shift, I'm curious you you probably heard uh, Jerome Powell in his press conference this week that he was he he was asked specifically about oh the break even inflation rates have risen quite sharply which I know you've noted in your recent research and but he said no we're fine they're about in line given the difference between CPI and what they track with about two percent and we want inflation expectations to be really anchored at two and they're not there yet so he seemed to really. Like he didn't blink that he's at all concerned. And when you say this paradigm shift is necessary, but it creates risks, do you think that he might, by the time he's concerned, they might not be able to slow the inflation move? Or, you know, how do you read that? Or are he kind of trying to convince that he could do it? Well, yeah, I think that they're, the power of tightening monetary policy will still be pretty successful when they get to it. So we'll see. I think the question is whether they're going to want to, given the trade-offs. So it's going to be difficult, right? And this is why studying, like in retrospect, it looks like monetary policy in the 1970s was totally foolish to allow inflation to get as high as it was, but it was dealing with problems, real problems at the time, oil, oil shortages, et cetera. There was a reason real interest rates were kept low for an extended period of time until inflation rose. Similarly, today, with all the challenges we face socially, there's a chance they're going to purposely be behind the curve for an extended period of time because inflation is better than the other options. Um, which the other options are difficult. If you take where asset prices are today and you think about how much income needs to be generated to support those asset prices, in the end, assets can only be worth the cash flows that they generate. To generate enough cash flow to support this level of equity market, you need either a lot of nominal GDP, which either comes from a productivity miracle or inflation, 
and you were much lower asset prices. So what do you want? Do you want to collapse in asset prices or do you want a general rising in nominal GDP? If you take today's asset prices and look at how many years of income are required to support those, it's about 24 years of income. The only comparable periods in history, there are four of them. One was um, was right before the, the tech bubble in 2000, 2001. Of course, that was resolved through a collapse in asset prices. 1929, again, collapse in asset prices. But on the other hand, 1910 and 1965 were absorbed by inflation, which is the other choice, um, where nominal GDP caught up. Real asset, asset prices did bad in real terms, but did quite well, quite fine in nominal terms, and nominal GDP caught up to the assets through that process. So we think you're going to face that dilemma that if they withdraw liquidity, that's going to have a big impact on asset prices because asset prices have been so supported by the liquidity. And if they don't withdraw the liquidity, they're going to have inflation problems. And so they'll go back and forth between that challenge of how much you want it to show up in lower asset prices and how much you want it to show up that pressure, physics, uh, put it that way, um, (laughs) to uh, show up in asset prices and how much you want it to show up in inflation. But there is no easy way out of the current dilemma. That's about all the physics I can handle. I think uh, Liz, Liz, Liz can get into the co the, the coefficients and whatnot. But you know, I, Greg, to me, I'm I'm sort of in awe and impressed of how well Pal kind of dodges the question of of Are you even thinking about talking about thinking about maybe whispering about tapering? Um, and I think it's very understandable given you know the reaction we saw the taper tantrum uh, a few years ago that he wants to not sort of tip his hand about when and if that might be. But I wonder if that, as you're talking about, there is going to probably be a reaction in asset uh, markets. Um, I, you know, the, the joke I've been saying is tapering ain't easy. I don't, I don't see any way to do it easily. Um, and I wonder if, if this um, sort of posture that he's taking with it now w- perhaps could condense the time between when they finally signal that it's coming uh, and when they actually start doing it and, and perhaps causes the tapering to be more aggressive uh, than what the market's expecting. And I wonder, you know, how much does that matter to markets? Is it all a matter of sort of what the Fed fund futures traders and what the euro dollar futures traders are pricing in? Is that basically the the main metric uh, that will determine how violent the reaction is uh, from the market when when it does finally come time to say, yes, we're thinking about tapering? Yeah, well, it's going to be a big deal. So I think um, in asset prices, right, there's and I think there's this important separation that's going to matter and is actually the biggest risk for asset prices is the separation between the real economy and asset prices. The real economy is about to have the biggest boom it's ever had. We're going to go and surging through the level. So if you look at where we expect we'll be 12 months from now, you're going to probably have a 4% unemployment rate, really hard to hire anyone, rising wages. Growth having been eight nine percent, um, and the Fed, and and what could the Fed mindset that if you look out you know eighteen months there's only twenty five basis points of tightening priced in barely anything right yet they're going to be facing those conditions so I do think we're going to force their hand, it's going to force their hand and the economic growth isn't going to be driven or so affected by the interest rates at least in my view because it's so fiscally driven the checks have been written the wealth is there. Um, the the um, the fiscal spending is still in the pipeline, so it's not as interest rate sensitive as let's say a normal business cycle created by um, pri- mainly private sector outcomes. So you have this possibility that the economy is continuing to surge ahead. The Fed still has these very low 
interest rates and they have to start reeling back. At the same time, the Treasury is going to be issuing for a long time, 13, 14% of GDP of bonds. Currently, the Fed's buying half of those. And um, if they buy none of those, the private sector is going to come up with the money to buy 13% of GDP in bonds. Are they going to do that at this rate? We don't find a lot of buyers in the private sector likely to buy bonds at anywhere near these rates to that quantity. Right. And that's going to be the first thing that's going to move is who's going to buy the bonds when the Fed doesn't. When they face those conditions, they are going to taper. And then you're going to need to fill that gap and you're going to find out how, how hard how hard it is. The Fed will find out with us. And then what are the implications? I actually think the implications for markets will be pretty important. The implications for the economy will be less so, at which point the Fed's going to face the second dilemma is do they react to the asset prices? Everybody in asset markets is so used to them reacting with a trigger finger to asset prices. But the reason is that the, mar- the economy has been so tied to asset prices, where if the economy is being juiced by fiscal policy, all of a sudden you've got two different worlds going on and you've got the possibility the Fed won't backstop the liquidity coming out of asset prices and asset prices can fall while the economy rises. That's actually a reasonable outcome and a normal outcome in a world where fiscal policy is driving the economy rather than the interest rate cycle. And so that's really where the risks are getting to be really big. And the and the worst thing for the markets, in a sense, would be a very strong economy that doesn't require this much liquidity while the asset prices require this much liquidity. And that's the world I think we're headed to over the next six months or so. In that world, it seems like somewhere there's and I'm not a, a stock girl. Mike's the expert on that. But it just obviously I watch it and. If if the market's less interest rate sensitive, you know, for a while we were thinking, oh, my God, where the 10 year was going, even though it wasn't too high relative to history, was going to upend the stock market. And it hasn't. And with what you just laid out, Greg, does that mean we have some more glide path for yields to go higher before the asset prices really start going? But obviously there's a point. Right. And it it makes it seem to me, is it harder to know when that point is? Um, And is that global demand going to come in, which it kind of has over the last couple of years to kind of tamp those yields down or, you know, that's what I think is tricky. It's a new paradigm. Like you said, where, where, where does the cracking point, right? Yeah. Well, you, but you can still look at the quantities, right? So the quantity is much more than it has been in those past episodes the, the foreign investors just are unlikely to fill that type of hole. So the main question is, will the Fed continue to Hold it for how long, but when they don't, it's going to be very hard. But I agree again, I, I want to separate. I think there are a lot of assets that will be quite vulnerable to a rise in rates, but the economy won't be as vulnerable. And that difference is the difference. Just thinking oftentimes we're thinking the economy and assets too much as a as being tied together, where obviously COVID crisis is a perfect example of where the economy and the markets can go radically different directions than they did. And the reverse, the reverse where the liquidity comes out, more money is spent in the real economy rather than in financial markets. The most extreme example is the retail bubble stocks, as an example, where people had nothing to do with COVID, household savings reached record levels, the money goes into certain types of stocks or whatever. Now things are opening up, those savings rates are declining, there's less liquidity there, and those assets come down that were so unhinged from the um, real economy anyway. So differentiating, what we think the real thing is going to be in the future globally is differentiating between the assets that require the liquidity and the very low real interest rates to make sense economically with those that can benefit from the nominal GDP cash flows in the real economy and separating between those. The things that really benefit from higher nominal GDP will do well. The things that um, get hurt by less liquidity 
that have high duration, those assets are in, in a lot more trouble. So that'll be the kind of the differentiation that I think you'll start seeing. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Greg, I'm going to get a little greedy here and ask you a two-part question, uh, but you should be grateful. I, I've been known to ask like 12-part questions, so I'm, I'm going to take it easy. Just, just try to try to keep it to two. But I wanted to go back to to something uh, you said earlier, and I know you've you've done some work on this and given it a lot of thought. And that it's that idea of the Fed being behind the economy and how inevitably that's likely to cause some excesses in markets or perhaps in inflation. I'm just curious. So, so the first part is I'm curious if you're seeing that anywhere. I mean, obviously you mentioned the meme stocks. I think that's a, a clear example, but are you seeing it anywhere else uh, yet? And if not, where are, where are the sort of corners uh, of the markets that you would look first? And then on top of that, um, to me, I, I think bubbles are a very strange phenomenon because the risk reward is, uh, relationship is so interesting. It almost seems that as an investor, you have to participate in bubbles uh, because so many people will will call the top early and think it's a bubble too early that that you really miss the best parts of them. So I'm just wondering, you know, with all the brain power at Bridgewater, uh, if you guys are any better than us average mortals in trying to figure out sort of when the music's about to stop, when to when to get out of a clearly overvalued market. And all along in Bridgewater's history, we've been systematic, you know, so we've taken very like the kind of discussion we're having now, a very qualitative view of the world, but translated into ways to measure. So you take something like a bubble, right? Bubble is a classic qualitative thing. How do you, what do you mean by a bubble? How do you measure that it's a bubble? Is it enough to say prices are high relative to history or what's the actual measure? And then how reliable is it? And, you know, we have six gauges of a bubble that we use all over the world, right? That you could apply it to cryptocurrency. You could apply it to anything you wanted in the world, to stocks, to bonds, to anything that, you know, that our basic scoreboard is our prices high relative to traditional measures, our prices discounting unsustainable conditions. So as an example today, um, you know, there's something like 10% of stocks that are pricing in more than 20% revenue growth and margin expansion, right? If you look at history, 2% of stocks actually achieve that. That's an extremely hard thing to do. Everybody's going to be the next Amazon, right? If Amazon was priced today, as those 10% of stocks are, if they, I mean, if it was priced 10 years ago, as those stocks were, the, re, the annual return on Amazon would have been like 8% a year because it would already have priced in this incredible outcome that not every company does, growing revenue 20% a year or faster. Um, so very, very hard. This is not, not counting the base effects from last year, though, right? Is no, this- no, I'm talking about right uh, ongoing growth rates without the base effect. 
it doesn't happen. That's very, very unlikely to happen, right? Potentially with inflation or something, it might. But but in a normal kind of forward-looking picture, you don't get that. You 2% of stocks actually achieve that. So that's an example of discounting unsustainable conditions. Not, they can't, as a group, actually achieve that condition. The fact that new another, now I'm on the third thing, is new buyers entering the market. How many new buyers are there? How big a part of the market they are? There's the broad sentiment measures. There's purchases being financed by leverage and buyers and businesses sort of extending, making extended forward purchases. That's our checklist for a bubble. We measure all the different things. And you see today a fair amount of the equity market in the US in a bubble, but not the aggregate. So the aggregate, we would say, is you know short of a bubble, but um, there are definitely pockets that meet those standards. And, um, and that's dangerous. And then, like you said, well, what do you want to do? Buy or sell them? Well, that's a whole other dangerous thing. And that's where when we survived, surviving 2000, 2001, we had a drawdown in 2000, 2001 associated with the bubble, both the dollar and the equity market and how that was playing out at the time. And that really forced us to get into flows, which is basically how we measure bubbles today is, well, how, where's the money coming from? Who are the buyers and sellers? What are their balance sheets like? How much more money can they put into this bubble versus how much um, income they're getting? And when does that start to flip? Right. And so for us, that process of being able to look at the balance sheets of the buyers and sellers, think about when they've been stretched to an extreme where they won't have the money, where there's more supply coming than possible demand. So you look at the IPO pipeline, you look at the creation of, of new instruments, those things relative to that, how fast those balance sheets are growing. And that's how we try to measure that crisscross. And it's still a very, very dangerous game, like you're saying. So the third part is be careful and be conservative in your thinking around the ability to time those things. Because like you said, that's kind of the easiest place to die in <laughs> asset prices is trying to be short a bubble too early. Um, so I think that's the kind of the way that we um, we go about trying to think about it and, and deal with it. And you're in what I would say is there's areas that look quite bubble-like or quite dangerous, but you also have the ingredients for bubbles, that it's nowhere near as big a bubble yet as it was in 99. So we know bubbles can get bigger. And it's um, and you have the perfect storm for bubbles. Excess liquidity, a very easy central bank, and a pickup in growth and a pickup in um, new wealth. New wealth tends to get spent fast, tends to get over-extrapolated. And, um, and so you have a lot of the conditions for an ongoing bubble. Now, I think the trigger will be, man, there's so much supply. So supply is coming at the market very quickly in those areas. And when the liquidity starts to get drained out, that's where you'll see that crisscross of probably in, in more of those bubble areas. No, I was what I was going to ask, Greg, is that one of the um, offshoots of the risks uh, I've read that you mentioned of this MP3 policy is that could be in the currency. I assume you're meaning a weaker dollar. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. We haven't seen that too much yet, but you know, what's the likelihood of that? Well, I think in the end, right, if you take the base, there's the destiny of the path that we're on, right? That we have learned that you can spend a tremendous amount of money every time the economy goes down and you can print the money to pay for that. That the destiny here is that you'll keep doing that one way or the other. The politics are go in that direction, whether it's Republicans through tax cuts or Democrats through spending. Either way, that is likely to continue. And um, and until you can't do it anymore. So what is the actual wall? The wall is inflation. The wall is or a dollar risk 
or bubbles that becomes so problematic, right? Those are the walls that will prevent this from going on forever. And, um, and the dollar risk is particularly important to consider, but it is worth focusing on the fact that it's a differential. Um, so it's relative. So the dollar, how much is the dollar going to go down versus the euro? Well, Europe's printing money as well. So what's the, what's the relative risk? So for us, the currency thing is looking at those differentials and the dollar, the US is on a path. So many countries have saved in dollars. They recognize if you take China or others that you can never get richer than the country that prints the money. So if, if um, they want to save in dollars, the Fed can tomorrow print more dollars than China could ever accumulate by selling us um, stuff, right? So eventually you're seeing just from a geopolitical thing that saving in dollars is risky for anybody that's competitive with the US. And that, the fact that over time, you're likely to see a change in where money will be saved. At the same time, you're likely to see more money printed. That's the picture that eventually will lead to a decline in the dollar that could take a, a while as a reserve currency and a decline in the dollar. But in the short term, focusing on those differentials. And the most extreme differentials are not within the developed currencies. It's really a lot of the emerging world, ironically, if you take a country like Mexico, you think of them as a kind of a monetary basket case. Meanwhile, they're so much more conservative monetarily than the, than the US is, running much lower budget deficits and much less easy monetary policy into this. So you have these emerging currencies that are actually the ones following what would be traditional tight monetary policy standards through a crisis and the developed world doing something very different. So I think you'll likely, for a variety of reasons, have strengthened some of those emerging currencies, uh, particularly the ones that are going to benefit from this growth surge in the US that don't require very much US dollar liquidity. And so, um, so I think that's the place you'll see the first really wave of strength. And more long-term, the, the issue you face is the, um, is the fact that the dollar reserve currency status is naturally changing and the printing of money and the using the dollar as a weapon geopolitically is leading to a more rapid transition. So those are the things. Certainly something that the Fed will be watching, but like you said, we're a long way from the dollar being a problem. If anything, the Fed would be happy to get a falling dollar from here. So that's a longer term concern, not a shorter term concern, but it will be a measure of whether we've pushed too hard. You know, Greg, I keep hearing a lot of people talking about the notion of peak growth, that uh, this quarter may, may possibly be the peak of GDP growth, the peak of earnings growth. Um, if not this one, next quarter, uh, large part because of the base effects uh, from last year. And I guess uh, for a lot of people, the same thing applies to inflation and the, the notion that uh, any bump in inflation we see in the middle of this year will be likely you know, either uh, uh, caused by the supply chain disruptions or the base effects from last year. I think there's a little bit of recency uh, bias at work, too. Um, you know, everybody was so worried about inflation during the first phase of QE and it didn't come to pass. Uh, that people are kind of assuming that's going to be the case uh, this time as well in, in the long run. I know you've you've given a lot of thought to inflation, uh, done a lot of work uh, on it, uh, specifically the, the role that technology plays as a, a deflationary force, uh, technology and automation and, and that sort of thing. So I'm just kind of wondering what your overall sense of inflation is this year. I mean, is there a risk that that kind of consensus that this is just a, a transitory hot period for inflation. Is there a risk that, that that's wrong, that this time is different 
from the first phase of QE and maybe that technology effect on inflation uh, will not be as strong as it used to be? Well, there's a lot in there. So let, let me go backwards. So the mechanics of- I, <laughs> That was one of the 12 part questions. Right? Yes. <laughs> so um, let me go backwards here for the, but the first part you said is, hey, a lot of people thought the, the first QE in 2009 was going to be inflationary. To be clear, we didn't. And let me talk about the mechanics of why. When you use quantitative easing to buy assets, and you're doing that largely because there's a credit contraction. They were offsetting a credit contraction with money. The credit contraction was massively deflationary and the money offset that. It went into asset prices. It only marginally went into the real economy. Very different. So you saw a big asset price move, but you didn't see a big move in CPI. You come to this policy where you're writing checks to people on the lower end of the income spectrum, um, and you are doing a lot of infrastructure, and you're printing the money to do those things. Totally different. This is all of a sudden creating demand in the real economy without creating supply. So there's no supply associated with those checks. There's no new production, et cetera. It just comes in. So you have this mismatch. So the belief that it's going to play out like post-2009, 2010, I think is wrong and that it is being underestimated how big a turning point we are. Now, if they pull back hard on fiscal and let's say the Republicans win in 2022 or whatever, and, and you come back the other direction on fiscal, maybe that's a different story. But if you go down this path of printing money to spend in the real economy or to get checks to people who have lower savings rates and the highest end, this is very different than putting the money into asset prices in terms of inflation in a good way. Like that's a good redistribution. There's a lot of good in that, but it is different mechanically from the effect on, on prices. So that I, I make that point first. So I do think there's a big risk. The market and the Fed are underestimating how fast this will happen. And everything's happening in warp speed. If you take the downturn in the Great Depression, right, it took essentially um, seven years to get to the bottom of the economy and seven years to get back up. That's how long it took for policy, et cetera. In the financial crisis, you had 18 months to the bottom, 18 months to come back up. In this crisis, you had you know such an extreme policy response that within a month and a half of the equity market collapse, you were two months later, you're back essentially to the old highs. Incredibly fast policy response, incredibly powerful. And the real economic effect will be slower than that, but could be much faster than what we're used to. And so I think that there's a real risk that the inflation can be stronger and more permanent. And that it's largely a big part of the permanence will be the power of labor here. We're going to be facing such a shortage of labor. You're already seeing it all over the place. There are shortages of goods and stuff, but there'll be a shortage of labor coming fast in the US. And um, that's a big deal. And you've got now um, a big shift in the philosophy of government, certainly for now in the US, that you went 40 years in a cycle of very pro-government policy, pro-corporate policies and pretty much anti-labor policies for 40 years. You have this turn, you know, almost with the hilarious ending of like the president, the last president checking stock prices and tweeting about them every five minutes um, as like the extreme of this very pro corporate environment, all of a sudden shifting to a different type of environment where regulation and taxes and um, likely eventually minimum wage and these things are going the other direction from an extreme, right? And naturally it'll come back to some degree in the other direction. So all of those things are pointing in my mind to a more inflationary and not just transitory, but a pretty big shift. Um, and then it will be, it'll be hidden in the transitory nature, much like inflation was in the 70s when the oil shock comes. Is it going to go away? Is it going to stay? 
Of course, you don't want to tighten into an oil shock if you don't have to for good reason. Similarly, the Fed's going to look at this year and say, do we really want to tighten into a bounce out of the virus? Like, does that make sense? But that's how inflation gets hardened. And, um, and so I do think you'll see that argument, the transitory versus not argument, be the big deal as inflation is rising. And I do think we're stuck with more of it for good reason. Now, on the technology question that you asked, yeah, technology has been a major deflationary force. So if you take the five major forces, the first most important turning point force was central bank policy. High real yields drove inflation down. Volcker driving real yields high and letting the economy go down until inflation came down, big deal. So first, there was the change in monetary policy in 1980, starts driving it. Then there's globalization, so much taking advantage of cheaper wages. There's also lower and lower interest rates and tax policy that allowed a pro-corporate environment that constrained wages, so anti-union, um, and a very low regulatory environment generally, particularly in the US, but generally globally. Um, most of those are changing. So you're left with technology as the deflationary force. And two points about it, certainly been significantly deflationary. The literal semiconductor impact of inflation is starting to turn. It's getting harder and harder. We have more concentrated semiconductor industry than ever in the world. It's a big flashpoint in the world in terms of danger, that there's a risk to supplies from a geopolitical perspective. So you went from, let's say, 20 years ago, where you had you know 25 firms competing to make the cheapest semiconductors, to now you have three. And it's not much of a competition anymore. It's more of an oligopoly. Uh, and um, and a dangerous supply point where people are turning to the sustainability rather than the cheapest possible supply chain. So you got a big deal thing there. Now, more generally, I think tech will be deflationary. There's still great inventions in AI and whatever that are coming. So there's deflationary forces. And to some extent, policy-wise, you want to take technological deflation, which goes to very few people, the benefits of it, and transfer it to all of society, or else you're going to end up in a dystopian kind of situation. So that's sort of the best way to look at the policy today is, well, let's take the technological deflation and let's use it for society's good through uh, monetary policy three, through essentially investing in the in the economy and using printed money to do that to offset the deflationary force. Now, where we are on that, it would look to me like we're pushing that to an extreme and you could do way too much of that. A little bit of that is the right move, but you get addicted on that and too much of that and more than offset the technological deflation, which when I look at the quantities, I would guess that's the case unless technological deflation accelerates massively from here. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Greg, one follow-up to that is one of the things that a lot of people have said to me is part of the reason for the kind of secular low inflation environment was demographics and low yields, right? Demographics. Somebody said to me the other day, oh, 10,000 baby boomers are still retiring all the time for the next decade. They need to save. And I think there are some folks who did like theories that 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 has kind of moved the the bias towards future consumption over current. I just want to ask you about demographics. How do you think that weighs in? Is that changing or how, how will that affect kind of the inflationary forces and yields? Well, I think it's different for different um for different types of items. Um, but I agree, agree. The demographics are part of the deflationary force. Now, the demographics in different places are changing at different degrees. And so if you take the emerging world and India and whatever, you've got different things going on. That in aggregate, I don't think it's quite as deflationary as it was when you see the shift in the demand toward the emerging world from the developed world. But, but um, you're right, although that's shrinking the labor force relative to the consuming bodies. Now, to the extent it shrinks consumption more, that's one thing. But as you age, you're shrinking the labor force relative to everybody that has to be supported by that labor force. And so it cuts both ways. The thing it certainly does in real estate, if you take the Japan example, is like the classic is that you got a lot of real estate built up for one level of population. You're shrinking that population. You have extra capacity. Um, so, So I think it's a mixed bag and it's a slow driving force of the dif- disinflation pressures that could easily be offset by these policies. And a lot of times we get the question, the Japan question or whatever, where, well, didn't they run big deficits and didn't they print a lot of money? They did nothing like this, just to be clear. While they ran somewhat big deficits, they were largely due to low tax revenue, not due to high spending. Huge difference in what the source of the budget deficit is. And then the second thing is, while they printed money, they didn't print anywhere near it the money that we are we printed recently until recently Japan started to print a fair amount of money but so the actual policies were muted relative to the deflationary forces and were nowhere near as huge as these policy shifts are so it's easy to get lost in well it's a trillion dollars here or a trillion dollars there the magnitude of what is going on is you know for the US is nothing like this since World War II and similarly for Japan and other countries they didn't do anything like this while they had some of the same language, they weren't doing the magnitude anywhere near these levels. You know, Greg, this whole discussion uh, makes me think that it's it's a very tricky time to uh, allocate assets and decide where you're going to put your money to work. Liz and I were joking uh, earlier. She said she she feels like she wants to put all her money under the mattress. I can't do that because my kids will find it, Liz. I'm afraid my kids will find it. But Craig, before we get to the crazy things, I'm just wondering if quickly you could give us sort of your big picture thoughts on what proper uh, asset class allocation looks like these days. Sure. Well, maybe you should let your kids decide what to buy. That's as it's, that's, mostly been, <laughs> that's been the right move for a while. But um, but um, but the uh, on the thing is what we certainly wouldn't do is put cash under the mattress. Like the basic policy is to uh, make cash be terrible. And so cash is not safe. So the money under the mattress is potentially the worst thing you could do because the policy is to make that money worthless or worth less than it is today, at least. 
And so what do you do? I mean, this is an interesting world, right? We have this conversation with our clients a lot. And I'd say the big thing is realize not all the world is the US. Not all the world is pursuing these policies this way. So one of the things that's missing in most portfolios is appropriate global diversification. China's facing other challenges, but very different than the US. Europe's facing different challenges as well. So a globally diversified portfolio. That hasn't helped in the last 15 years. The US has been dominant. And um, But if you look at how those things rotate over time, almost always the best country over the last decade is usually near the bottom in the next decade. And so, A, that's first thing is thinking about that. I think it's particularly important for what who will benefit from a growth surge, but less liquidity. The U.S. has benefited, the assets in the U.S. particularly benefit from a high liquidity environment, and they benefit less. They have less um, essentially cyclical variability associated with the nominal GDP. So look at who the marginal suppliers are. Anyway, that all pushes you to a much more global allocation. The second point would be environmental diversification. Are you prepared for stagflation? That's the real risk, which is they push hard, they get the inflation, and they can no longer bail out asset prices. Do you have enough assets that'll be acceptable in that environment? And there's argument about what those assets are, but but some mix of assets that'll do well in a stagflationary environment would be really important. And generally, nobody has those assets. Um, so those are, um, you know, those are the kind of the big things that would come to mind in our view of what that asset allocation should be. So more global diversification and more assets that can protect you in probably the the worst case is that stagflationary environment. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Well, we're going to diversify ourselves here into the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Uh, this is a a fan, a listener favorite, Greg. So, uh, so no pressure, but I hope I hope you came with something good. But Liz, let's start with you. What's the craziest thing you saw this week in markets? Well, I think not that we've never seen it before, but the Treasury Department today sold four week bills at zero percent. So this kind of speaks to all the liquidity in the market. And despite all the angst in the long end and whatever, you know, the government is just selling treasuries at nothing. So it's pretty mind bending to me. So what do do you guys think? Where's the demand that's causing that? I I, I've noticed a lot more money's going back into money market funds. Do Do you think it's that? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, at that level, I think it's known that um, the Fed's not tightening anytime soon. So there's a bunch of buyers at that level for that period of time. And so you see that and you see the need for different entities, banks and others to actually hold those assets that way, given the regulatory environment. So you've got that. It's going to be a lot harder to get the very long duration supply filled. But at the very short end where you know you have the Fed's back um, is, is much easier to fill in. All right, Craig, can you top uh, 0% uh, treasury bills for your crazy thing? Well, just back to like buying the things your kids would want to do with your money. I'd say the, um, you know, just an example, it's a little stretch for markets, but one of the interesting phenomenons that is is near and dear to, to my youth is uh, the bubble in baseball cards that's going yeah. on. And yeah. so seeing a... Um, well, this is now football cards, even more stretch. It's like the uh, silver to the gold here. And... Um, uh, Tom Brady card that sold for $1.7 million, interesting enough, but but sold in Litecoin, um, was a, a good example of what's going on in terms of there's all this new wealth, whether it's in cryptocurrency or new wealth created by tech companies and such. And the money is pouring from them selling, them selling those assets into the things they want to buy. And so it's been, I kind of joke about, it's like a Bubble and everything nerdy. So if you've got <laughs> baseball cards, if you've got comic books, if you've got old video games, 
I mean, it is unbelievable what the market cap of those things are doing. And that's part of what's happening. The new wealth gets spent and it's where that money goes. And there's almost no limit if you have you know, billions of dollars of market cap in Dogecoin and Litecap, like they could buy anything real in massive amounts. And that's what you're starting to see is the people that held those assets starting to cash out of those and buy something real, where there's the new phenomenon of more recent buyers coming into those assets, giving cash to the people that are really originally produced them. And that money is flooding everywhere um, and, and realizing what are those things that that money is going to go buy. That's really been the... Um, the play recently. I I am I share your fascination with that. I I love these crazy collectibles that sell for God knows what. I I would love to know from what city the person who bought the Tom Brady card came from. I I don't think it was Philadelphia or New York, Liz, but I, I pro- probably Boston. I'm I'm guessing. But uh, but Greg, mine's mine's in that same vein. And and one of my favorite things is uh, collectible sneakers. Not that I have any myself. Well, none of the sneakers I've worn are collectible. Trust me on that. You, you want to throw them away instantly, but two pairs of Air Jordans, uh, up for auction recently. One hasn't gone to auction yet. So we only know what the expected value is. One has already gone to auction. The first pair were, uh, Air Jordans, the, the very first pair of Air Jordans or the first edition of them worn by Michael Jordan himself. Uh, they're up for auction. The other pair was Kanye West's has a uh, set of Air Jordans out uh, called, I believe they're called Yeezys. So the Air Jordan ones and the Air Yeezy ones. I want to make this a quiz show for a little bit here. What do you guys, which which pair do you think is more valuable? Kanye's Jordans or Jordan's Jordans? Rookie year. Jordan's Jordans. Jordan's I think you're Jordan's asking because Kanye's Jordans are better. I'm just going based on my judgment of why That's you're asking the question. <laughs> it's the beha- it's the behavioral finance aspect that you really have to get right. And and Greg got it right that time. You're absolutely right. But the 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 spread in prices is amazing. Granted, the Jordan the Air Jordans haven't gone on sale yet, but they're expected to get as much as 164,000. The Air Yeezys are uh, already sold for 1.8 million. So 10 times the price of uh, Jordan's rookie sneakers. But here's the crazy part. I haven't even gotten to the real crazy part. The Air Yeezys weren't bought by a collector. They were actually bought by a company called Rares. And their plan is to cut them up and sell fractional shares of the Air Yeezys as investments to other people. So, uh, Greg, I don't know if Bridgewater's in the market for... uh, Say the laces from from the Air Yeezys for for the portfolio. I'm, I'm my guess is no. <laughs> yeah, that's not quite our area of expertise, but it is a good example of what's going on. And when you have so much money in financial assets, it will seek a home in something, and um, and that that shift is is happening. And that those are those are good examples, and that's that's going to be the big phenomenon. And when there isn't enough money coming into the financial assets, you're still going to have some of that money coming out. And so that's going to be the kind of turning point because those people that have accumulated wealth, what was the purpose of it other than to do something with it at some point? And so um, so I think you'll see a lot more of crazy stuff as people cash in this extreme amount of wealth that's been accumulated recently. Absolutely. It reminds me of the old movie, Brewster's Million. Remember when uh, Richard Pryor was just had to spend all the money he bought a uh, priceless postage stamp and mailed a letter with it. You know, it almost feels like that's what's going on. When they're like, "If you can't keep it as an investment, so he used it to mail. He had to use yeah. it." Um, <laughs> right, right. 
Maybe I'll buy the Yeezys and wear them around. I can't afford the Yeezy, the Air Yeezys. Who am I kidding? But anyway, I think that is all our time. Uh, Liz McCormick, Greg Jensen, Thanks, such Greg. a great conversation. Thank you so much uh, for your time, and hopefully we can do it again. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous, and Liz McCormick is at at McCormickLiz. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pallet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.